Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit subscribe on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Join the Facebook group. I am Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. Here with me tonight, my panelists from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, Ball State Athlete, Paul Habakot. And if you're watching, this is show number 50. So thank you for everyone who's been watching in the last 50 shows. Our special guest tonight, former PGA golfer. He's first-team All-SEC two times and won an SEC team championship with David Toms, as well as an individual SEC championship in 1984. His rookie year on the tour, he's got two top ten finishes that year. He's got four professional wins. He's played at the U.S. Open, PGA Championship, and the Open Championship. PGA alum, Emlyn Aubrey, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. Good to have you here. So tonight we're going to be debating the top five golfers of the 1990s. That's something we like to do here is go back a little bit and work our way forward through the years. So we're starting out tonight with the 90s. And our first golfer we're going to discuss is Nick Faldo. All right, Nick Faldo. He was, uh, he was from England, um, European tour player, but he visited the U.S. regularly. Um, Faldo turned pro in 1977. And uh, he found some success over the next several years, but his career really took off uh, when he began working with famed golf instructor David Ledbetter in the late 80s. Uh, during this time period that we're talking about tonight, the 90s, uh, Faldo's career was just firing on all cylinders. Uh, by then, in 1990, um, he had a huge year. He won the Masters the, and the Open Championship. Um, he was named both European Tour. Uh, golfer of the year and PGA player of the year. He became the number one ranked player in the world in September of 1990, and he held that ranking for the next 97 weeks. Um, he would go on to win the European golfer of the year award again in 1992, uh, the open championship that year also, and second in the uh, PGA championship. Um, and he won the masters again in 1996 um, that was that was a very memorable Masters. Uh, he trailed by six strokes going into the final round, uh, but he was able to overtake Greg Norman uh, for the win. Uh, we all remember that Greg Norman just seemed to, to just fade there in that final round, and and uh, you know uh, Fowler was just so intimidating, and he, and he was able to, able to overtake him. And actually, ended up beating him by five strokes. Um, 
you know, not only was Faldo uh, well accomplished, but, you know, I mean, he was just great under pressure. There were several times where he was able to win, you know, get squeak out a close win. So, Emlyn, the English love golf. I mean, that that's just a given. I mean, is, is he maybe their favorite son? And, and what can you tell us about their game or his game? <laughs> uh, definitely the English love golf. Um, my one experience over there at the British Open, uh, 1989, I believe it was. Just amazing. It's not only like stepping back in time, but the whole town that was at Royal Troon and the little town there was just uh, every window, every light post had something golf on it. So uh, no doubt that they love golf over there. So uh, I think I think Fowler's got to be the, the, the big man over there over the years. Just an incredible career. Uh, you know, six majors, only two different ones, though. Masters and uh, Open Championship. So, you know, being from England and, and um, winning that Open Championship the three times that he did, that was uh, probably helped his cause over there as far as being the, uh, being the golfer of the, uh, what do they call it, the golfer of the year, but he's the golfer of the lifetime, I would think. <laughs> Quite a few Ryder Cups, too, if I'm recalling correctly. I think he's captain. Yeah, like uh, 11 maybe, something like that. Yeah, incredible number. Yeah, that's 22 years of Excellent. Team, team golf. Awesome. Well, let's move on to the shark, Greg Norman. Love Greg Norman. Uh, I'm actually sporting his uh, clothing line here. Got the shark there on, on the shark. Um, you know, Australian golfer. Uh, you know, he was actually taught by his mother, who was actually a single-digit handicapper uh, when it came to golf. Um, she would let him caddy for her, and that's kind of how he learned. And when he turned 19, uh, that's when he started to get noticed by, like, the media for his play. Um, he was one of the best drivers in the game uh, during his era. Um, between the 80s and 90s, he spent 331 weeks uh, as the world's number one ranked golfer. Uh, he won the Open Championships in 86 and 93, 20 other PGA Tour tournaments, and was and he had won 89 professional tournaments. Um, he has 30 top 10 finishes and was runner-up eight times in the majors. Um, he ended up being uh, inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2001, and he actually had the highest percentage of votes out of any other golfer at 80%. His nickname, the Great White Shark, which he got after his performance in the A1 Masters, uh, and that's probably why he has the logo on his clothing. Uh, he finished uh, runner-up three times at the Masters, two times at the PGA Championship, two times at the U.S. Open, uh, he won the PGA Tour of Australia Order of Merit six times, European Tour Order of Merit once, PGA Tour Leading Money Winner three times, PGA Player of the Year, Tour Player of the Year. He won the Varden Trophy, Byron Nelson Trophy, the Old Thomas Award, Charlie Bartlett Award, uh, Golf Week, uh, USAToday.com put him ranked number four for top ten golfers in the 90s. Uh, he had 12 victories in the 90s, and one was a major championship title. Uh, in the PGA over the, the 90s decade. Craig Golford, I think he's definitely at least top five. Evelyn, let me ask you, I, I did a little research. Bleacher Report lists Greg Norman as the biggest choker in golf history. That seems a little unfair to me. Now, I know he's lost, given up some leads and stuff, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's funny, you know, the um, sports writers are so for they – just because Norman lost a lot of golf tournaments, it's like, uh, you know, what last year, Jordan Spieth being in a uh, slump, so to speak. So 
Um, it's funny how, you know, you hear, you hear some labels they put on some of these guys over the years that, uh, that had some success and then a couple of years without success, then boy, they're just down the list real quick. Um, but I tell you, Norman was the, he was the guy, he was the first guy out there that was, uh, that kind of his presence impressed me. Um, I tried, you know, since all, I was playing against all these guys, I didn't want to be in awe by any means, but, uh, you know, he had the big hat and the blonde hair and he had the physique like a swimmer, you know, the big shoulders and small waist. And he was, uh, he was the most impressive presence I thought out there. Um, you know, yeah, he messed up some tournaments, but it seemed like he was always there. So, you know, you don't, you're not a good golfer, um, or you're not a bad golfer if you're always in the hunt anyway. So he closed some out, but he probably closed or didn't close more out. And, um, you know, kind of one of those things where what if, what if he hit this shot, this shot, or somebody didn't make a shot, you know? So, you know, he, some of his losses were by other people's great shots. So it's hard to take that away from him. But um, for me, I think he's the most impressive one of this, this list we're going through. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. Let's move on to uh, John Daly. Paul, which is the awesome picture there. Okay. Yeah, minor emotional picks. So I know the stats aren't there, but you've got to think John Daly when you think of the 90s. And he's still at it today in some capacity. Long John, one of his many nicknames, definitely known for his loud clothing, long drives, somewhat inconsistent play. It's kind of an understatement, but everybody thinks, and the criticism is there about good times, you know, different spouses drinking, but I embrace John for his self-taught golf swing, all of his flaws. Uh, he's got a lot of great qualities about him, part of a lot of charities, but he's definitely known for being very human throughout the years. Born April 28th, 1966, he won the PGA Tour five times, the European Tour three times. Um, he's got 17 professional wins. Uh, he had won the PGA Tour in 1991, which was his well-known zero-to-hero victory. That's one of the things he was uh, kind of known for. Um, in 97, he becomes the first PGA Tour player to average more than 300 yards per drive over a full season. He did so every year from 99 to 2008, and he was one of the only players to do so until uh, 2003. In 2004, he made a PGA Tour comeback and won Player of the Year. The highest he was ever ranked, I think, was in 2005. He was 23rd. Um, there's other stats, but to really encompass some of his play, let's join me on a little bit of a memory Recall here, during the 1994 PGA Tours, NEC World Series of Golf, Daly hit several shots into a group playing in front of him on the 14th hole in the final round. He drove the green twice. One of those shots almost hit professional golfer Jeff Roth. This led to a scuffle between Daly and Roth's father. They wrestled to the ground. Uh, fans ended up breaking him up. Uh, how about something that I would do in the second round of the 2015 PGA Championship at Whistling Straits Golf Course in Haven, Wisconsin. He was one over par at the time. Hit three consecutive tee shots attempted into the water of Lake Michigan at the par three, seventh hole. He was a four iron on the first unsuccessful try, then switched to a six iron. Next two failed tries after his fourth attempt, a seventh shot, which found the green. He was so livid about his shot selection, he threw his 
six iron in Lake Michigan, uh, basically a septuple bogey on that hole. I've got a few more of these, but for the, in the spirit of time, this is just one of many water stories. Uh, nobody will probably have the guts to vote for him, and I can't vote for him because he's mine that I'm representing, but I argue for him because to us fans, us recreational golfers, he sort of represents the dream. He acts like us sometimes, but he doesn't resemble what a typical athlete looks like or plays like. Yet in, when the word golf comes to mind, you know, you think of Tiger Woods, but in your heart, you know, you got to think of John Daly a little bit too. And we also had uh, one of his former caddies on, Dan Quinn. Uh, it was for a hockey show, but we did ask him about uh, John Daly during the Q&A. But, Evelyn, of all the people we're talking about tonight, when Daly is on, he is on. But his inconsistencies seem to come up quite a bit. Yeah, John's actually, he's probably my closest peer of, of this group that we have tonight. Uh, we're about the same age. We played college golf against each other. So uh, we, we kind of go way back. Absolutely greatest guy in the world. Do anything for you. Um, unfortunately, throughout his career, he's known for just what Paul talked about. It's, it's kind of not only his off-course antics, but his on-course antics. So he had those few good, uh, you know, several good tournaments. Obviously a great player. And, you know, a lot of the talk at the time, especially, you know, when he was getting having some, you know, possibly some drinking problems at the time, you know, was he or wasn't he drinking on the course type of thing. So, you know, we always wondered what, what kind of golfer he would have been if if he was indeed drinking on the course. What, was he a good golfer because of that or would he have been better if he had that under control? So that was kind of all the questions with John. But, uh, you know, absolutely emotional pick absolutely paul i agree just uh best guy out there would do anything for you give you give your shirt off his back so to speak so when when you saw him connect on one of those 300 plus drives when he's in his groove was it just a sight to behold it was he was the uh you know back then uh, he was the longest driver out there um won the driving distance you know category every year so I got a quick story about that. We were playing in the Woodlands in Houston, Texas. Houston Open one year. 13th hole is a par five, Island Green. And uh, we both hit our drives out there. And he, I laid up with a seven iron, and he hit seven iron on the green. So. <laughs> Guy's got some power. <laughs> yeah. So he was, uh, he was the, you know, Bryson DeChambeau, you know, type of guy back then in the 90s, so. They, they just had a John Daly night in St. Louis two nights ago at the Cardinals game, and he tried to mimic his drive uh, with the first pitch. He told the catcher that he's going to try to throw it as far as he could. So he tried <laughs> to launch it into the seats, but he but it fell short. He didn't make it. <laughs> he's probably, I would say he's probably the most, or at least was before Tiger came along, but probably the most famous Golfer to non-golfers in the world, I would say. Well, let's move on to the other Nick we have tonight, and that's Nick Price. This is a Zimbab Zimbabwean, Zimbabwean, there we go, Zimbabwean golfer. He won three majors in the 90s, uh, reached number one in the world, and in 93-94, he topped the tour money list. You know, everything's about money this day and age, so that's pretty impressive. Um and he set a new record for money earned. So I'm sure that's been beat since that time, but back in the day, he set that record. 
Um, and he stayed in first for 43 weeks. That's a pretty long time period. This man basically dominated the 90s, in my opinion. 93 and 97, he won the Vardon Trophy for uh, the lowest adjusted scoring average. 92, he wins the PGA Championship, which was his first major. He wins that by three strokes uh, ahead of Brian's guy, Nick Faldo. He shot a 70 the first two days, which, you know, that's decent. Then falls that up to 68 on day three, and then a 70 on day four. So the consistency won that tournament for him. Um, going into 93, 94, he wins the PGA Tour Player of the Year, and in 94, wins back-to-back majors, um, the Open and the PGA Championship. And you can add the Players' Championship as well in 93. Um, he's got... Just in the 90s, he's got 16 PGA tournament wins, four European wins. Um, you can toss in a, a Japan Tour win as well, um, eight Sunshine Tour wins, a PGA Australian win, and five other wins. So that's a total of 36 tournaments that he won in the 90s. That's an impressive number. Um, he's one of the best ball strikers of, of all time, not just of the 90s. Um, and I know this is – I know this stat right here is 1980s, but I do want to throw it out. Because I thought Kevin was going to mention about Norman shooting a 63 at Augusta but uh, in the 90s, which uh, he did. But that actually tied Price, who had set that record uh, with a 63 at the Masters. So, um, you know, he's also a Hall of Famer, but, you know, everybody might pretty much is Hall of Fame caliber. So what, what's your thoughts on Nick Price? Um, is he like maybe the best pure ball striker that we're talking about tonight? I agree. Uh, definitely, you know, not not the um, you know not the character or the um, you know most famous, most outspoken type guy, but really another another really great guy, uh, number one in the world. I got to play with him one year at Bay Hill, and we were we I wouldn't say we were you know we were close friends, but uh, always always there talking. You know, ask me how it's doing. I was I was younger you know, first couple of years on tour and he'd always, you know, take time to ask me what's going on. You need anything type of thing. So, um, great guy. Another quick story with him. I'm playing with him at Bay Hill. You know, I, I don't know. He's number one in the world, close to it or something like that. So again, not trying to be in awe, but I absolutely got him, got to play with him. Um, I don't think it was the last round, but it was probably Saturday round. I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't miss the cut, but, uh, we're playing together, getting to 18, iconic golf hall at Bay Hill, water all around the green, rocks and all that famous stuff. But anyway, uh, we both hit our drives out there. Back in the day, we were hitting five, six, four, five, six irons at best. And, you know, they're hitting it way down by the water and hitting nine irons in these days. But um, I think he pulled out a four iron or maybe five iron and got this shot, a lot of people around the green, and just totally lays a sod over and hits it literally 30 yards and he just <laughs> I'm sure the look on my face was shocked but he just laughed it off and you know got up and down for par no big deal so uh, another funny story you know kind of a surprise in my eyes and something I always remember playing with uh, somebody of that caliber back in the day so I think he's better than the other Nick we're talking about tonight, but we're going to have to figure that out when we go to the vote. So I'm going to throw that trash at you there, Brian. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to uh, – let's change this order up a little bit here. Let, let, let's get the sentimental pick in here, um, Payne Stewart. Okay. 
I went for my favorite golfer, but Payne's still in my top five. When you think of Payne, you're thinking of Ivy Caps, Knickerbocker Pants. I mean, he's an original. Once again, kind of the same argument I made for John. I think of Payne Stewart when I think of the 90s. He's born 13057 in Springfield, Missouri. Unfortunately, taken too soon from us on 102599 in a Learjet plane crash. He was most known probably for what I mentioned, how he, you know, how he dressed, his colorful wardrobes. I think it was rumored that he had one of the largest wardrobes in golf. He had a beautiful fluid swing and photographers would just kind of seek him out because it was, as you can see behind me in the small snippet, he was just kind of a sight to behold, but he was a golfer through and through, married to Australian golfer, Mike Ferguson's sister, Tracy in 82, and they remained married until he passed. But Payne won his first PGA title in 89, and in his career played in 1,600 events. He had 11 PGA Tour events, including three major championships in his career, 130 top 10 finishes, and won over $11 million in his career. He had basically 24-plus professional wins. The highest I think he was ranked was number three, and I got here June 10th of 1990. So in those rankings, he kind of made it to three at one point. But um, he's got, uh, you know, Masters Tournament tied for eighth in 86, PGA Championship won 89, 91, 99, tied for second in uh, the Open Championship in 1985 and 1990. He was elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2001. Byron Nelson Award in 89 and Bob Jones Award in 2014. My memory, real quick, of Payne Stewart is, as a lot of little boys, where I collected cards, you know, baseball cards and football cards. And I remember back in the day, pro set for the football uh, cards had a Payne Stewart golf card. It kind of bled into the sport, and it was him wearing one of these crazy outfits with, like, the NFL on there or whatever. And I remember, I didn't know who he was, I remember asking why he was in there, and ever since then, I was a huge fan of him. So that's that's basically Payne Stewart. What was the reaction in the golf world on tour when you all heard of the passing? Yeah, it was just a shock. I remember uh, remember one of those things, you know, obviously with tomorrow being 9-11, you know, everybody's saying, you know, everybody knows where – they were at that moment. So that's, uh, that's the case for me and Payne Stewart. I was actually moving from Austin, Texas, back here to Shreveport. I will be closer to my wife's family. And uh, we were just packing up the house and I don't know what was on TV or whatnot, but you know, the, the breaking news type of thing came in and, um, you know, just kind of, you know, it wasn't, didn't, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. It was one of those things where the breaking news came in and, and the plane was still in the air. So we kind of glued to that TV to see what the outcome was. And obviously it wasn't great, but, uh, you know, just uh, pretty much of a shock. I, I didn't know him very well. I knew him a little bit, played a couple of practice rounds with him over the years. But, uh, you know, like uh, like we said, just smooth swing, just had that character to him with the, with the outfits, um, all parts of his game. Everybody just kind of – try to implement it into their games, you know, good driver of the ball, great chipper, great putter. So, and then, uh, you know, just to have him win that U S open that same year that he, that he passed that, uh, you know, just kind of topped his career off and, you know, unfortunately it didn't end great that year and form, but, uh, you know, that, uh, that making that putt in the U S opens is probably, you know, when 
everybody says, or you say Payne Stewart's name, if you're a golfer, you think of that last spot on at Pinehurst for that U.S. Open. That was a big moment, and uh, sadly, that that plane crash was one of the saddest days in golf history. But. Yeah, no, we never we never been through like that, anything like that before. Yeah, All right, let's move on to uh, Ernie Els. Ernie, South African golfer, nicknamed the Big Easy uh, because of his size. He had uh, pretty nice, you know, fluidity to his uh, swing. Uh, he learned how to play golf from his dad. Um, he started. Uh, Soon after that, being better than his dad and his brother, um, he started playing at the age of eight, and he won his first tournament uh, in the 13 to 14 year old uh, World uh, Championship, uh, finishing ahead of Mickelson. Um, he was a former number one ranked golfer. Uh, he has more than 74 victories, uh, four of those being major championships, 19 of those on the PGA Tour. He won the U.S. Open in 1994 uh, at Oakmont. And Oakmont is a very difficult course outside of Pittsburgh, um, not far from where we used to live. Um, actually, just down the street from where our grandmother used to live. <laughs> um, but a very tough course. He won that, that Open in 94. He also won the Open in 97. So he has two U.S. Open victories in the 90s. Um, he's also won the, the Open Championship uh, in the early 2000s. Um, he's only one of six golfers to win both of those tournaments twice, the U.S. Open and the Open Championship. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, he was uh, third twice in the PGA Championship and runner-up twice in the Masters. Uh, he won the European Tour uh, Order of Merit twice. He won the World Match Play Championship seven times. Um, he was the leading career money winner for a while there. Uh, he was the first member to win over 25 mil uh, in European Tour events. He held, um, as I mentioned, he held the number one world rank for a while, but he also held the record for most weeks in the top 10 at 788 weeks. He was ranked in the top 10. Uh, he was elected into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2010 um, and then got officially inducted uh, in 2011. That was his first time on the ballot. Um, he was PGA Tour Rookie of the Year in 94, uh, European Player of the Year three times. He won the Sunshine Tour Player of the Year for two seasons in the 90s. Um, he won the Payne Stewart Award uh, once, the Old Paul Morris Award once. Bleacher Report listed him uh, as number three in the top 15 golfers of the 90s, and then Golf Week USA today put him at number five. So he had seven PGA victories in, in the 90s, and two of those were majors. He also deserves to be in the top five. Tell, tell us about Ernie, though. Um, yeah, Ernie. So, uh, you know, as as wild and crazy and well-known as John Daly was, Ernie Els is just complete opposite. You know, a quiet guy, just went about his business, you know, never any controversy. Um you know, I wouldn't say anything but boring, but obviously just, um, you know, didn't really care for the limelight all that much. Just went out, got his work done, won plenty of tournaments and money, and uh, just went about his business in a, in a calm and, and uh, impressive way, no doubt. Big guy, just smooth swing. Um, got to know him a little bit as well. And actually, I played in that, uh, that same Open at Oakmont in 94. And, um, you know, it was right there in the clubhouse when he uh, ended up winning on Sunday. So uh, great guy, just, uh, you know, again, my kind of, my kind of guy, pretty laid back, you know, I think a little whiskey in a jazz club type of guy, just uh, hanging out, telling some stories and then uh, go home and go to bed. Kevin, I want to give you some credit for your two guys tonight. They have the best nicknames. I mean, Ernie L is the big easy. 
That's that's a great name too, along with the shark. All right, let's move on to uh, let's see, Jose Alazabel. I can't even say it. Yeah, Jose Maria Alazabel, who came out of uh, out of Spain. Uh, Jose turned pro in 1985. Uh, he spent much of his career on a European tour, uh, but he played in the U.S. from time to time. Uh, Jose had a top 10 showing in 1990 and 1991 at the U.S. Uh, Open, and in 1992, he took third in the Open Championship. Um, his biggest achievements uh, both occurred at the Masters, though. Um, he won in both 1994 and 1999. Uh, a year later, he tied the PGA Championship record for the lowest score uh, of 63 at the uh, Valhalla uh, Golf Club. Um, when he won the Masters in 1994, that marked only the second time a golfer um, who had won the Amateur Championship had become the winner of a green jacket as well. Uh, Jose, uh, he also did some team golf. He was a member of uh, Europe's Ryder Cup. Um, many times, and he helped them win uh, 1991, 1993, 1997, and 1999. Uh, in 2009, he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, and uh, he still is occasionally on the uh, on the tour today. So, Emmeline, we, we all these players are really good. There, there's no doubt in that. But Jose's putting, he's one of the greatest putters of all time, in my opinion. What do you think about that? Absolutely. You know, he, I think with, with Jose, though, he just he didn't get the credit that he deserved just because he didn't play that much over here. You know, obviously a couple Masters wins, but, um, you know, for the most part, he'd come over here, play the majors and a couple of the maybe uh, lead up tournaments to the majors to get acclimated. But, uh, you know, he, he spent most of his time in Europe and uh, did, again, most of his success over there. And I don't think you can say Jose's name without thinking about the great Seve Ballesteros, you know, they were what a team they made uh, during all those Ryder Cups those years in the 90s. They just were uh, pretty, pretty unbeatable. So, uh, you know, Seve's, Seve's, if I had to pick a hero for me growing up, uh, Seve's my guy. So, um, you know, since Seve and Jose kind of were hand in hand over the years, I liked the way Jose conducted himself. And I just wish he would have played over here maybe a little bit more. And, you know, who knows what he would have done over here. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of fun, those two, watching those Ryder Cups over the years. Let's move on to our final player tonight. That's going to be Mark O'Mara. I'm representing him, American golfer. So 98 PGA Player of the Year. Two career majors both occur in the 90s. The odd thing about that was, though, he didn't actually win a major till post-40 years old. So it took him quite a while to, uh, to get one of the big ones. Um, so he wins the Open Championship in 98, but the real big one is the 98 Masters, and you probably see this in highlight reels where he wins the green jacket, of course, but this was a great tournament. He shoots two over on the first day, and he's not even really in contention uh, that first day, so not a good start. He comes back day two, shoots two under to put him even after two days. Then day three, he shoots a very, very good 68 putting him all the way up into a tie for second place. Now the final round, we go to the final round, day four here. He birdies three of the final four holes, and he puts up a 67 on the day. And going to the 18th hole, he has to hold off David Duvall and Freddie Couples, two very, very good golfers. 
And Omeris sinks like just an incredible 20 foot putt to win that tournament. It was an insane putt with the pressure of the Masters and everything going on. And the two guys who are basically there tied with him being David Duvall and Freddie Couples, two of the biggest names in golf, that made it even more impressive that he sinks that 20 foot putt. Um, just some quick stats. He's got 11 PGA wins in the 90s, three European, a Japan, and four South American wins. So I think he is, I mean, he's still around obviously today, but he is most remembered for that 20 foot putt at, at the Masters. When you do things at the Masters, it's it's just remembered more than anything else that, you know, as Kevin said on uh, our last golf show with Kenny Knox, green jacket, gold jacket, is it's all about the green jacket when it when it comes to golf. So, Evelyn, I, I don't know if you remember that putt or not, but uh, you know, what were your thoughts? You do. What, what were your thoughts on Marco Mera and and just that moment? Uh, Marco's just one of those guys. He'd go along. You know, have pretty solid years, years, you know, years and years on end. Just um, you know, top whatever didn't, didn't win a whole lot but he was a solid contender every every week it seemed like and then uh after age 40 and had that 1998 year that he did and i tell you a lot of a lot of tour pros would uh kill for that that kind of career you know not nothing no not no flash to him no real fame um so to speak unless you're unless you're a real golf fan but uh you know just a solid contender every year he played and then, uh, you know, that breakthrough year just kind of solidified his, uh, his career over the years that, uh, with those two majors. So, um, you know, absolutely, a, probably, you know, probably down the list as far as, uh, you know, what we're looking at tonight with these players. But uh, like I said, a lot of players would give anything to have that career. All right, let's move into our vote tonight. Kevin, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> Um, Nick Faldo had the, uh, the four majors, um, but, uh, Nick Price had way more victories in the nineties and only one less major. Um, uh, so that's a, that's a tough one. Um, but I'm gonna have to go, I'm gonna have to go with Price, um, cause he had way more victories than, than Faldo and only one less major. So I'm gonna go with Price. Okay. I'm going to go next, and um, I'm giving it to Faldo. <laughs> I'm just going to take up what you did, Kevin. I don't even need an explanation because you nailed it when you said he won all four. That's, you know, that's impressive. Brian? Um, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, – I'm going to go with uh, Ernie Els. I really like the consistency. Uh, I mean – uh, what Kevin said, you know, what was that? Seven, almost, almost 800 weeks in the top 10. That is really impressive. It's really impressive to stay at that level for that long. So I'm going to go with Ellis. Okay. Paul? I forget, Mike. I have to pick somebody different or I can pick one of them. You got to pick somebody different. Top five tonight. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. All you guys stole it. Thanks for letting me go fourth. Um, you know what? That's fine. I'll, I'll go. I'll go Shark because he kind of falls in line with, you know, with what I like about golf. So, you guys had a really interesting life, so I'm going to go with Shark. Okay. 
And Emlyn, you get last pick here. We got Payne Stewart, Jose Alazabal, Marco Mare, and John Daly. Uh, well, we'll just go with. Um, did we say I get Payne Stewart? Yeah. All right, no I'll have to go with that one. I think just because he was uh, just had the all-around game. You know, one one a share of majors. Had that little bit of flair to. to you know, garner a little extra fame probably. So uh, I'll go with Payne. So Legacy Battles, top five of the 90s for golf. Nick Price, Nick Faldo, Ernie Els, Greg Norman, and Payne Stewart. I I'm glad to see Payne and, and, the, and the Knickers get on there. That Yeah. That, that makes me feel good. That really does make me feel good. <laughs> All right, let's move into our Q&A. Uh, let's see, Kevin, you got two on the list tonight. So you get the victory. You get first question. Um, so tell me kind of what was your favorite, uh, course and what do you think was the most difficult course to play in, in, in the PGA? My favorite course was no doubt Westchester Country Club, uh, the old Buick, uh, Buick Classic, I think it was called. We had the Buick Open, Buick Classic, and then there was a Buick something in Georgia at, at that time. But, uh, Westchester Country Club, just old school. Very similar to the course that I grew up playing on in, in Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, not overly long. It was always, back those days, it was always a, a tournament right before the U.S. Open. So it was always set up as, as a U.S. Open type test uh, for, for guys to come over there and try to get ready. So high rough, fast, hard greens, um, definitely my favorite over the years. Uh, probably my favorite tournament over, over the time was um, – Oh, I'd say that Pebble, Pebble Beach Pro-Am was, was one of those tournaments you'd play every year. It wasn't the greatest situation playing three different courses. And, you know, it was always January, February, so the weather was iffy. But obviously the scenery was incredible. The golf courses were incredible. Um, you know, playing that Pro-Am format could, have, could be trying a little bit because you could uh, – you know, get some amateur partners that uh, couldn't break a hundred. So um, probably my favorite, um, probably the most difficult course, uh, probably a toss up between Spyglass, which was on the rotation of that Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Un very underrated golf course, just incredibly difficult. Um, if, I always said if they had a U.S. Open there, over par would easily be the winning, winning score. And then uh, one year, U.S. Open at Oakland Hills in Michigan. Probably the most difficult golf course I've ever played. Um, what year was that? Probably 96, possibly. Probably my last U.S. Open, 96, I think it was. So Oakland, Oakland Hills in Michigan. Oh. I think you're, I know you were, and I think you still are. Aren't you coaching golf? I am. I coach at a small college in Shreveport, Louisiana called Centenary. What, in your time as a player, what would you say the best piece of advice was that you received? And in your coaching, is that the same? Or what do you think your best piece of advice that you give is? Well, as a professional, the best piece of advice that I probably received was during my first few years is to not overdo it. You know, you get your tour card and you're excited to be out there and, boy, you just want to play every single week and you, you just can't do that. So 
that was probably somebody told me you just got to pace yourself you know find a good number of tournaments to play in a row and then take a week or two off and you know you always hopefully you got the next year to play the tournaments that you may have missed that one year so that was probably the best advice uh, a little bit on the same level um, with college kids you know they're they're trying to juggle their schoolwork and practice time and then missing school for road trips, stuff like that. So a little bit of them, you know, pace yourself a little bit. Uh, you know, if you can't practice or if you can't practice what I want you for the day, at least practice a little bit. So my my um, kind of motto with them is I like quality practice over quantity. So, um, you know, we're, we're in academic school, so they're, they're very stressed on their and very tested on their academics here. So... Um, I just tell them just kind of pace yourself and, you, and you'll find out in life, whatever you do, jobs, anything, you know, you get, you got to pace yourself. You can't work seven days a week. There's no way. So, so yeah, I try to um, give a little bit of advice that I learned back then to, to my college kids. Brian. I, I understand that your first pro win on the Asian tour uh, was the uh, San Miguel Coca-Cola Philippine Open in 1989. Yeah. Uh, what, was it, what was it like to win at Asia's longest running golf tournament? And uh, what are the differences between the Asian tour and the, and uh, the tours over here at stateside? Well, the Asian tour was great because it taught me adversity, um, the golf courses. So we played 10 different countries back then on the Asian tour. So it was just a three month tour. It's during the spring early spring and uh, well early late winter early spring was, was the time frame so we played in Pakistan and India and um, Indonesia Malaysia Singapore Japan Korea so uh, obviously wide wide variety of courses and course conditions so that's what that taught me over there uh, to go over there my that was my second year so I, play, I already played in 1988 over there and uh I enjoyed it. I like the food. I, I'm a, I'm kind of an adventurous type of person, so the uh, the cultures didn't bother me. The food didn't bother me. So um, I played in '88, and I couldn't wait. I didn't get my card in '88, so I couldn't wait to go back to Asia. And uh, I believe that Philippine was actually the first tournament going back over there. So uh, great golf course. It was right on the ocean. Um, you know, it looked it was kind of like a Hawaii type course, if you picture that with ocean views and cliff sides and stuff like that. So um, I remember the conditions weren't great. The putting surfaces were very slow and bumpy. And um, I learned to overdo that. And if, uh, another good piece of advice that I learned is if, if you can beat somebody before they mentally before they tee off, then, uh, then, then you're going to beat them when the round's over. So I just looked at it. Everybody's playing the same course, and I did uh, did just that that week anyway. So it was, it was fun. Still have the trophy too. Nice. <laughs> so you turned pro in '86, uh, but you don't join the PGA until 1990. So during that like four year period, what part of your game was it that you felt you had to work on the most in order to make that jump to the the PGA? Uh, physical part of the game was putting for sure. I just uh, you know, growing up at, at one golf course in Pennsylvania you, and mainly staying in the north was just the, the different grass than coming down in the south. So, you know, I had to learn a lot going to LSU and the grass is down here. So that transition from one one golf course to the next, I was a little slower than some as far as, as, far as the short game goes. So that, that held me back a little bit. 
Um, but, um, you know, I just tried to play a bunch of different tours when I could. I played played the Asian tour. I played in summers in the North and South Dakota. They had a tour. I uh, played some state opens, tried to move around the country as much as I could to get that experience of not only competing, but uh, playing different golf courses, different grasses. And I, I knew that would be the case when you get on tour as well. You, yeah. You ever cross paths with Palmer or Nicholas? Uh, yeah, I actually played with, uh, played with Jack and Tom Watson on Sunday at Pebble, at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am one year. That was my pairing. So that, that was pretty fun. Um, old, old man, old man Bush was there, follows around with his wife, first few holes, got to meet them. So cool. it was Sunday. We were about the second or third to last group. So we were, we were in the hunt and, um, you know, obviously the crowds were there and that's the one. You know, that's one of those celebrities playing alongside. So, um, actually, our celebrity was Jack's son, Steve Nicholas. Um, so it was it was myself, Tom Watson, Jack Nicholas, and then Steve, Jack, and Steve had made the cut as their as the team there. So they played with us. So that was probably my most uh, best pairing, and then you know my my interaction with Watson and Nicholas. But uh, Arnold, I never really got to. I got to meet him one time. I, I, he did give me an exemption in the Bay Hill one year that I wasn't um, ordinarily qualified for. So I got an exemption there. So I got to meet him and talk to him, thank him about that. But that's my only real interaction with him. Another, another thing I wanted to ask you was um, I found like an old, like an old article from like the mid nineties. And it said that your, your wife, Cindy was a, was your caddy at the time. Yeah, She was. What was that like having your, having your wife as your caddy? Well, the, the big joke was, you know, you pay a caddy 10% or so, and I just paid her 100 that's all. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to um, make that joke, but it's what really happened in real life. <laughs> it happens in real life, yeah. Um, we had a good time. It was uh, something that it was mainly the um, nationwide tour, just to save some money. You know, you're not making the money that you are on the regular tour, so you're driving around, so it was a way to save some money, and she was, um, she was all for it, and Enjoyed the experience, enjoyed the exercise that she got. And um, she was actually caddying for me that day when I played with Nicholas the first, that was early in 96. And um, she always, she jokes, she goes, I had to get pregnant to get off the bag. So it <laughs> <laughs> um, was the only way I could get her off the bag. So uh, so they, we had our first child later on in 96 there. So she had, we had a good time. She uh, at Oakmont that year. She caddied for me there, and you know Oakmont's famous for its 100, 300, 400 bunkers, whatever. And she literally told me during one round, if you hit another bunker, you're raking it yourself. <laughs> how many caddies? How many caddies for you? Yeah. There. How many That's caddies would say that? <laughs> um, we had fun though. We had a nice uh, one year Sports Illustrated. Wrote a nice article about wives at Caddy, and we made that, so that was fun. So, Kevin, you're the best golfer out of the four of us, and you won tonight. So, I'm going to give you last question. Go ahead. Awesome. So, uh, I want to take you back to like 1994, and then 96, 97. So, it looks like 94. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were on the Nike tour. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So, it seems like that was your best year in the Nike. Like you, you didn't miss any cuts. You had eight top ten finishes, uh, three runner-up finishes. You finished tenth on the money list. 
And then in 96 was your best year on tour, it looks like, uh, recording two top five finishes, a runner-up at the Vancouver Open, um, and top 75 for money list. What do you, what do you think was clicking uh, during those years that, that those were like your best years and, and whatnot? Yeah, I wish I could pinpoint one thing, but um, the main thing is it just, for me, it was kind of the start you got off to each year. Um, I was I was a little fragile mentally, I'm not going to lie. So um, if I came out of the winter break and I started out well, you know, West Coast, um, it seemed like I had a pretty good year the rest, the rest of the way. But, um, you know, just it's other than the, the greatest to play the game, most of us out there are having up and down years and losing cards and getting them back and falling back to the, uh, you know, Corn Ferry Tour, which it's called now. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's a tough game. You know, there's so many, so many good players, so many good players. And I think there's more these days uh, than there were even back then. So it's just a matter of so momentum oriented golf is. And, um, you know, you get off to a good start and you putt well and, have a couple good finishes, you can ride that. But if you get off, miss a few cuts, West Coast, you know, it's tough to it's tough to regain that. But uh, you got to remember the nice thing is with golf, you can click at any point, and you can uh, you can have that great week. So you just got to ride that. After after that does happen, you got to ride as long as you can. Well, thank uh, thank. Go oh, go ahead. Real quick, I'm sorry. I just got one more thing. I apologize, but uh, no worries. You know, I, I've heard there's differences. Uh, you know, like you, like you had mentioned about the grass, you know, being different up north than down here, and, and it is. Um, does the atmosphere, like the air and everything on the west, or, I mean, obviously the mountains, it's a little different. Is there, like, a, a big difference in the different areas of the country when it comes to golfing? Uh, it's it's nothing. That That's that's a little more simpler thing to, to adjust to quicker, quick, faster, whatever. Um, you know, you get the West Coast, you got the heavy air on the ocean, and then, you know, Colorado or so, you got the thin air, you're hitting it a little further. Uh, Florida, sea level, so it's a little more humid there. And then, you know, again, for me growing up in Pennsylvania, that was, that was where I was most comfortable, up in the Midwest and East Coast, uh, that kind of thing. So that was a little bit easier. I mean, it definitely affects golf. Um, I remember teeing off at Pebble Beach on in the Pro-Am out there, and 10th tee, you, got, you know, it's a mile and a half, van ride out there and you got a 715 tee time in the air you can't see but 40 yards through the fog and you know you got a you got a 158 iron normally and you're hitting six iron you know so trying to cut cut a ball through that fog out there so little things you got to adjust to at times but um, those those come those should come to you a little bit quicker than some of the other uh, like the grasses and um mainly just the uh, competition that you're playing. And again, as a young person out there, you're trying not to be in awe. But if, if you're a golf fan growing up, playing against sometimes your idols when you're a kid, you know, that's the hardest part to get over. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great to have you on. Yeah, great. Real, thank you. Golfers are hard to get because uh, you guys just never retire, you know. <laughs> that's right. Hawks <laughs> out on the course. For everybody's watching, make sure you hit subscribe on whatever you're watching on and join us next time. Thank you for watching. Good night.